Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, uh, you'll hear me speak with Faith Knight. Faith Knight is a journalist, uh, a writer of both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, she's a woman of color who's had a lot of amazing experiences and we talk about a lot of them, and it's gonna be a very exciting and engaging conversation. I wanna point out that at one point we talk about Dave Chappelle, but this was recorded before the most recent controversial Netflix special, um, which I have watched. And I will tell you, I stand with the trans community at a time when more trans women are being murdered and uh, there's violence against all trans people. It, this was just not a good show. And so uh, you won't hear me say anything about it during our particular interview, but uh, I don't want you to think that I approved of Mr. Chappelle's anti-trans rants and also, frankly, some anti-Semitic humor. Uh, you can always contact me at isthatreallylegal.com, leave me a message, or, you know, find me on Twitter. <laughs> or now you know people are talking about it uh, that's fine but I don't want to take anything away from this really great interview with Faith Knight who uh, has a brilliant career both behind her and in front of her and we talk about publishing and real inside baseball stuff so um, if you're an author you're going to listen to that uh, so without further ado please listen to this interview with the lovely and talented Faith Knight Faith Knight, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so glad to have you on. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate your asking me. Uh, as you and I spoke for maybe a minute before I started recording, uh, we met, at, at least as far as we both remember, in Atlanta at a writer's conference, which would have been 2013. Yes, it's um, so. And since then, I think that we've interacted numerous times on most likely Twitter, because mm -hmm. that's kind of where we both hang out a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have you on. You have such an interesting background. Um, and uh, for people who haven't tuned in before, one of the things I try to do with this podcast is I try to show people, especially creative people, that there's no straight line. There's no wrong way or right way to do it. There's just whatever way you do. And that you also don't have to be a particular kind of person. And in fact, um, if you'll see, I, I really wanted to have a lot of women and people of color on this podcast because well, let's bravo. face it. Well, oh yeah, I'm the greatest, let me tell you. I mean, you know, as a white male who's about to be 60, um, I got educated a lot this year and the year before. And I grew up thinking in my New York bubble, you know, that like, hey, everything's handled. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've yeah. come a long way, but uh, I, I'm going to be the first to say sorry, not just to you, but to a lot of people. I've said it before and I've really, this is part of my effort to move the ball forward right. um, and be a, be a part of a solution and not just wring my hands or throw money at an organization. Right. But I want people to meet people and see what's possible. So no pressure. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. um, for people who don't know, would you classify yourself as a woman of color? 
Yes. Um, um, I always consider myself multiracial because of the fact that um, my father's African-American, but my mother is mixed. And our family has a little Caucasian, a little Chinese, a little Indian. So we've got kind of a, a real mixture. But uh, my family on my mother's side was pretty much Oh, what was that saying they used to use back in slavery days, octoroon or something like that? Oh she my God, yeah. Really, really just a small amount of African-American and it's pretty much shows up a lot in her brothers and sisters and her, you know, her parents, yeah. You know, when I read Trevor Noah's book, um, which I recommend to people, and I don't know if you've read it or seen it, Trevor Noah is the product of a, a white father and a black mom, but they they use the term colored very specifically and I don't use it ever. So sorry, <laughs> I don't mean to use it, but there's just like every culture has its own way of describing people. Yeah. Cause you know, look, I, for some people I pass as white, but the fact that I'm Jewish and from European Jews specifically, I don't count as a white person. Now don't get me wrong. I, I have never with very few exceptions. I haven't run into any of that. You know, I have occasionally, you know, on Twitter, I got some name calling because it's Twitter and what's a day yeah, on Twitter yeah. without being called something by a right. Nazi, but, <laughs> but um, literally, but, and occasionally as a kid, but it's a very different ballgame. So I'm not putting myself in that, in that class. Yeah, the but, term colored, um, of course, you know, when I think on my birth certificate that they had that I was colored. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, and That's also, crazy. um yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that's what it said, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure it said colored. No, no, it was talking about my parents. It was talking mm. about my parents and that, you know, in those days they had, you know, and yeah, well, anyway. Uh, and in a book that I, I wrote, a, I self-published a book last year. Um, and I use that term a lot because it was set in 1967. Oh, yeah. You know, people don't. So I was born and raised in the 60s and I've seen so many terms uh, go by for all kinds of people, but especially yeah. for, I'm just going to use people of color unless somebody right. corrects me. Right. Um, Black, Negro, African-American, colored, yeah, ran the game. Yeah, it's a whole thing. And, and you know, what's interesting is it's all about, it's all about putting people in boxes, ultimately. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm going to take a time out from all of this for a moment and ask, where actually did you grow up? I grew up in two places, um, probably from, I don't know. Um, I was born in, in uh, Ohio. We didn't live there very long. We moved to Pennsylvania and I was born outside of Pittsburgh. I mean, I, I was raised outside of Pittsburgh for most of my childhood. Then we moved back to Ohio to a little town called Yellow Springs where my family's from. And um, so I spent the rest of my years as a teenager in Yellow Springs. I don't know if you're familiar with Yellow Springs. It's a, it's a small college town. Antioch College was there. I think they've moved mostly to California now, but yeah, Antioch is there. And um, yeah, it's just a nice little village. It's one of those places that never changes. You know, you can go back home and it's still some of the same places are still there. Some of the same stores are still there. It's just, it's one of those villages where they really tried to keep an industry out and they were pretty successful. Right. I've seen the move to keep the giant, what we call the box stores, you mm -hmm. know, like Walmarts mm -hmm. and, and Home Depot. You know, some people love the convenience of some of these stores, but as you and I both know, uh, 
where I grew up, out on Long Island, well, those things didn't exist when I grew up, other than right. Woolworths, which was hardly a BMF. Um, but there were little mom and pop places where you, you know, as a kid growing up, you'd walk in there to the point when by the time you're a teenager, you knew the people behind the register, they knew you, your parents, you'd walk yeah. in, it was like, it was part of your life growing up there. For many of us, though, in the burbs, the suburbs of New York, those things changed and those stores literally disappeared. So it's yeah. nice to hear that there's a continuation of that. Yeah, Did a lot you... of people gravitated there. Um, Dave Chappelle actually has a farm or a house um, just outside of Yellow Springs. Yeah, and... I found that fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I saw a couple of specials. Uh, I saw the special that he did that, you know, wasn't funny, but I recommend to everybody. Well, was it funny? I mean, he had a couple of comedic moments, but for the most part, it was a registering of, how do I put that? For, for people who don't understand why, why people finally lost their minds with the George Floyd thing, he goes, he, it, it would be enough just to see what happened with George Floyd. But he talks about all of the many travesties of injustice that occurred up to that. I assume you've seen that special and maybe I'm wrong. But it's no, actually, I have not seen it. I have not I, seen it. I've been I, so in, involved in other things. I'm just not. <laughs> I recommend it to people. I think it's called 847 or it's it's the length of time. And I'm sorry, folks. I'm just going to tell like it is. It's the length of time that the officer choked Mr. Floyd to death. Oh, right, right. right. And, and um, so if I got the time wrong, I'm sorry. I have to be honest. Right. Uh, I, I don't remember it, but I do remember how impactful it was. And that was part of, you know, this year, uh, this isn't about me, but I just want to, one of the reasons why I love having a diverse group of people on the show is that um, I feel like I learned a lot of things just during the pandemic because of the, uh, the protests that happened, because of my paying attention to my friends who talked to me about Black Lives Matter, um, who, uh, Ava Dun Duvernay, is that her? The, there was a, a couple of brilliant movies that had been created, Black mm -hmm. Judas being one of them, which right. I was transfixed by that movie. Um, my, um, my cousin and her husband, they moved back to Yellow Springs and they were very, very um, active. They were, I would consider Arnold an activist, um, but they were very active uh, in a lot of things from the 60s. And they moved back to Yellow Springs from New York and they lived there until you know their deaths. I think Arnold just died last year. Um, he was Sorry. a poet with, um, oh goodness, what was the name of the company? Um, Knopf, yeah, he was with Knopf. And uh, then of course my cousin Virginia was a writer as well, um, but yeah. Well, how did you just, were you early on in school? Did you feel compelled to write? Yeah, I did. And as a little kid, my father used to write greeting cards <laughs> and he would send me, he, he'd create these greeting cards. He was like one of those people that was good at everything. He would create greeting cards and he would send me around the neighborhood to sell these little greeting cards that he created. <laughs> what was your dad's name? Curtis, yeah. Is he, is he gone? Yes, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. 2007, yeah. So yeah, he started me off with an interest in writing because he wrote. And then of course my cousin Virginia having, you know, once she got published in the 60s, um, she was a big influence on me too. Virginia Hamilton, she was a big influence on me. And uh, I'd, I'd go over to her house and show her stuff that I'm working on. And she kind of would encourage me. So 
Yeah, so it was between her and, and then, of course, once she passed away, you know, Arnold, I would go to the house and see Arnold whenever I was in Yellow Springs and Arnold Adolph, and he would um, encourage me as well and, and kind of try to put me in touch with people and stuff. So they were just real, um, they, they were a big impetus to my decision to, to start writing. And did you go to college for writing? I actually went to college for journalism because my father told me I wouldn't make any money as an author. <laughs> Curtis, wherever you are, I'm sure you had the best of intentions and you clearly were a good man. Uh, but that's what parents do, right? Parents worry yeah. about their kids. Yeah. Yeah. So I became a journalist instead. Right. Now that I find fascinating because you, you, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, where did you end up going to college? I went to Wright State University in Dayton. And the reason I went there is because it was close and I was working at a factory in Yellow Springs and I needed to put myself through school. So I did that uh, at, at uh, Wright State. I was able to kind of pay my, my way as I went so I wouldn't have a loan, which was great. So yeah, that's where I got my journalism communications degree from Wright State. And then I kind of got into writing for newspapers. Um, I was a stringer at the Dayton Daily News for a while. And I also you, I'm, just, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know what a stringer is, but <laughs> some people don't. Okay. So do you mind telling us what that means? Yeah, a stringer is somebody who sort of comes to the newspaper and they'll write articles for them based on like a, a, a particular amount of pay. It's almost like a freelancer. And, and basically, I think a stringer is a freelancer. They, they didn't call them freelancers back then, but they call them stringers. And you would come and you would just write an article, maybe some kind of neighborhood article or whatever it is, and they would pay you for that particular piece. This is before what we euphemistically call the gig economy. Yes. Uh, which... Just as a side note, you know, when you and I, I'm sorry to paint you with the same age brush as me, um, and you can hate me for it or not, but um, <laughs> when I was younger, you know, my parents both worked one job each for their full career and then got a pension and they mm -hmm. had benefits, which allowed yep. me to like, when I got sick, to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And when they retired, they had a real pension. And yeah. that was before one of the biggest travesties of, you know, ruining uh, our economy and our society was suddenly making everything, everybody's a consultant, everybody works for themselves. And certain elements of our society tried to paint that as a great thing, you know, you're independent, you're on your own, like, as opposed, what they really meant was this big ship, there's no room for you, we're throwing you overboard, you're on your own, what a great opportunity to learn to swim um yeah 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 those days are over no no more 30-year jobs and you retire and the company pays your pension it just doesn't happen anymore right and I think that it's really been part of what decimated the middle class in this country yeah I'd be I'd be inclined to agree with that uh but I, I I've been getting more political and interrupting conversations with my <laughs> socialist uh leanings uh but I, I as always I digress so uh, you were a stringer for a while. Uh, did you enjoy that process? Well, it was difficult for me because um, I got married young and I got divorced young and I had a son when I started school. And so when I started college, I was about four years after everybody else. And so I was on a mission. You know, I had to get my degree and get out so I could get a job and take care of my son. And so I also took on extra jobs 
besides my factory job. Again, I was a stringer and I also wrote for that black paper. Um, but then I did some internships at a couple of TV stations and radio stations trying to get you know, some experience before I got out there. And that was really helpful because I got my first job right after college um, at a small television station. And uh, I sent out, I think, I think I got like 60 rejections before I actually got hired by them. And the only reason I got hired by them is that at, at one of the stations where I interned, I bugged them to death until they let me on camera. And I said, I don't care what I do. I said, I can go to the fair. I can do whatever you want me to do. And so they let me on camera, which they never did before. And that was the first time they let an intern do a news story. And I did 10 stories before I left there. So I had a little tape that I could send out to people. So that Facts. helped me get a job. Was there an issue, you being a person of color, getting in front of the camera at that time? No, because at the station that I went to intern, they already had a black woman anchoring. Awesome. Yeah. So, so basically what you did was you created a portfolio for yourself mm -hmm. so you could shop that to other stations. Right, exactly. And that must have been very helpful. Yes, it was. I, but the thing is, I only had one. <laughs> so I would write these letters first, and if they showed any interest, I would send it because I was afraid if I sent it, I might not get it back. Oh, I got you. You know, this is back at a time. And again, kids listening, uh, technology has changed. Yes. I, I've talked to people about the fact that I went to college with a portable typewriter. Yeah. I left law school with a, a desktop computer with a dot matrix printer, had secretaries as an early attorney. And now my law practice is basically wherever I am because I do it all from my iPhone and my laptop. Uh, but that's been a big shift as you know something of that. So well, they were starting to actually use computers at my second television station. So it was funny because we had a big story about this little girl who got kicked out of Catholic school because she believed in abortion. And CBS News came to cover the story at our station. And the reporter, and I don't even remember which one it was, but the reporter who came from New York brought his own typewriter. <laughs> and we were using computers and we're like, uh, okay. <laughs> but did you have your, uh, that video, was it on like a cassette tape or a quarter inch reel or like, or two inch? Like, I mean, they had, you, you may not remember and that's fine because it was on, the first one that I had was on three quarter. Got it. Kids don't even bother that looking it up. That was awful. Three quarter was awful. I think, I think before we ended up going to the really, really small tapes, we went to, I think when I was at MSNBC, they were using M2, something they called M2, which was a small cassette, but it was still a cassette um, before they, you know, went to the whole computerized editing and, and shooting kind of thing. But yeah. Now you can email files to people. It's actually quite yeah, amazing. Yeah. I think it is too. Uh, did you feel like that you had done it like, okay, I'm just a, I'm a TV reporter and I feel great about it. Was that what you wanted to do or was there something missing? Yeah, I liked it. I think I liked the fact that I was, or I considered myself an advocate for the people. That's kind of what I wanted to be because I came up during the era of Janet Cook. If anybody remembers who she was, she um, was working at the, she was the one who faked the Pulitzer Prize, who got the Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize for the fake story in at the Washington Post. And coming Oops. up around that era, I was, it was ingrained in me that I needed to be a responsible, objective reporter. And that was all I was supposed to do. And so that was kind of what my focus was. And a lot of other people who were coming up during that time felt like we've got to make up for this. 
You know, we've got to do better. We've got to be more objective. And that was sort of my focus. I wanted to be the advocate for the public whenever I did my stories. It feels like every decade or so we get one of those. Mm-hmm. We get like a fake report and it's like, oh, I lived in this place for a year and did this. And then you find out it's all like just made up. And, and it's funny because nowadays you can't really trust any of it. And that's really the sad part. That's, I think that's why I'm kind of disenchanted with news right now is because I came up at a different time and to see the way news is done today just breaks my heart. You know, <laughs> I, I have to say my, my pet peeve about news. Again, I grew up a long time ago, kids. And I watched people like Cronkite uh, mm-hmm. and, and such. And they David Brinkley. <laughs> yeah, Huntley, Brinkley. Huntley Brinkley. Oh my God. I was really little, but I remember that. Oh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't that just yesterday. Um, and I remember it wasn't this, what's what do you have to say? And then oh, and the other side of it is this, okay, we have to leave it there. No, these were people. Look, I'm an attorney and I'm an advocate for my clients. In many ways, the press was designed to be an advocate for the people. It was, as many call it, the fourth branch of government that would tell truth to power as opposed to, I don't want to tell too much truth because power won't come in to talk to me. And I've been hearing a lot of stories lately, actually, about what people call access journalism. So I, I, do you feel like talking about that? You don't have to. I, I will just sum it up for people saying so many alleged journalists are afraid they will, if they tell the truth, they won't get their calls returned by certain people. They won't be able to get the interview. So they don't step on toes by telling the truth. Is that, is that an accurate uh, explanation of that? Access that, that may be the case today, but I don't believe that that was the case for us back in the day. Because, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's the case today. And I don't understand that because your job is to make sure that you tell the truth. Your job is to make sure that the people find out things that they would not be able to find out without you digging in and finding those things and, you know, being, uh, I guess, like, uh, uh, you know, like the Watergate, for instance. They expect you to do that kind of work. The public does. And if you're afraid because you're going to be, refused your information you got to find it someplace else that's what they did they found it someplace else they didn't get what they needed to get from the big heads and so they went around them and got what they needed and that's what you need to do regardless of what it takes that's your job you know the first people or person i remember to do this and i'm no fan i don't even know if he exists anymore the drudge report came Mm -hmm. out as when press weren't reporting certain things drudge would somehow get a hold of things and that now fast forward to a time when there's a lot of newsletters out that are either free or have a subscription fee that are uh, catering to a clientele who are tired of things like the New York Times. The New York Times, which was the gray lady, the the standard for America, comes out with headlines and and stories that you're like, what are you thinking? I mean, (laughs) this isn't just me. Uh, have you experienced that? Uh... Things have changed. Things, things have changed. It's, it's very disappointing. But I mean, I think that going back to what you said about them being afraid that someone's not going to return their calls or whatever, integrity is really the big thing, I think. And if you have that integrity, you're going to get somebody to talk to you. Somebody is going to quietly creep up and say, look, I'm going to tell you this. Don't say I said it. 
but I'm going to tell you this because you're showing me that you've got the integrity that you're going to handle the information properly, whatever. I think journalists today, especially young people that are getting into the business, really need to rethink the way news is being done today and think about what their real responsibility or role is in that position. Yeah, I think people, I'm sorry. I mean, you can report on deep background, you can use these people as a starting place. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then work your way. I mean, I'm not telling you. I'm just telling people who are not no, familiar and, with journalism. I think what it is is I think maybe they don't want to do the legwork. You know, I don't know about this generation because I'm not real familiar with it. My son was a what was he a he was a Gen uh, Gen X, and I don't know anything about any of them after that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, these damn you kids. Got, yeah, you you've got to be able. You've got to be willing to put in the work. Put it that way. You got to be willing to put in the work. And, and what used to really bother me about young people who wanted to get into television, they just wanted to put their face on the screen. They just wanted to be seen. They really had no interest in writing. They had no interest in reporting or investigative anything. Oh, that used to make me so mad because we had this journalism, um, this high school journalism workshop that we used to do. I was in this group called NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists. And we used to do this high school workshop. And before we let the kids in, we would have them write letters to us and we would give them a scenario, just the facts. And we'd tell them, write a story with those facts. Some of those letters that came in, they made up quotes, they made up people. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can only use what we gave you. And so we would write them back and say, this is why you didn't get accepted. <laughs> right, this is not creative writing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of shows what you and I have already seen, which especially in broadcast journalism, we now live in a world of infotainment. I've heard the expression. If there's some information, but it's all about, you know, look, I'm just going to say it, Fox News. Like they have, (laughs) there. it's a little like some of the Spanish stations in the morning, uh, they have a, a really handsome guy a woman whose body is, shall we just say, enhanced, wearing a very tight outfit, and maybe a puppet. And that is the morning journalism. Fox News is just about at that level. And I don't know about the others. And to be honest, I just don't even, that's not where I get my news anymore. Uh, uh, But I'm gonna- it's, It's all about entertainment, you're right. And the line between news and editorial I think when that line started blurring, that really bothered me too, because you remember back in the day when the news would be at, it, at its end and then the anchor would start to talk and you got this little thing in front, <laughs> the lower third said editorial. Yeah, so you I, knew that what he was giving you was his opinion. They don't do that anymore. Everything's editorial. And they did, they put that thing under there. And then if I'm not mistaken, you'd hear the voiceover person go, the views of so-and-so are not necessarily yes. those of this station. <laughs> Some, you know, that the lawyers, and they had lawyers, would, you know, who would write up a disclaimer uh, and the FCC cared and, okay, well, mm-hmm. I, I'm mm-hmm. going to be that mm-hmm. old guy who just shaking my What's fist. What's up at- with the FCC then? What's up with them? How come they're not like, policing these people like they used to. They used to bug us to death. (laughs) Years years ago, Al Franken wrote a book, uh, The Lying Liars or The Lies, whatever it was all about (laughs) Rush Limbaugh. And it talked a great deal about the fact that people like Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly got away with stuff. And their defense was that nobody could possibly believe them. 
It wasn't, the defense wasn't, no, they were right or whatever. But everybody knew they were full of crap and nobody cared. And um, by the way, that's a, still a good book. And I'm still a big Al Franken fan. If you have a problem with that, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message. I'll happily respond. If you are looking forward, if you had questions for Ms. Knight, uh, obviously this is not a call-in show, but you can also leave them there. Again, that's isthatreallylegal.com. Uh, I'm gonna get back to you though, if I may okay. call you Faith, because we know each other. Um, at some point, your writing uh, took more of a center stage and you're unusual because most people either do nonfiction or fiction but you do everything so <laughs> how and that's that? probably my problem <laughs> well, you've written i'm sorry about the sirens i live in brooklyn and not in a sound studio so that's just the way it goes i'm sorry um but you have in fact won um a african-american literary award for some of uh for one of your self-help books if i'm not mistaken which book was that yeah it was called the real book on how to cook secrets mother never told you and is that specifically forgive this old white guy's question is that like a uh, people of color cookbook as i say that no, no actually it's not actually it's not i wrote the cookbook for my niece because i was sitting at my i was well actually my niece's daughter i was sitting at her house trying to have a conversation with her and the phone kept ringing and it was her daughter asking her questions like boiling water and i'm like wait a minute wait a minute <laughs> what is up with this and so i said maybe i need to write a book for people to just teach them how to cook and that's what this book is it's not a recipe book it was a book to just tell people what you need to do from the time you walk in that kitchen to the time you set the table. That is so great. That is the most practical concept. Yeah. So I, mean, I talk I'm... about different pots and pans and what they're used for. I talk about the different butters and flours. And I just talk about just the basics you need to know, like uh, oils and at what temperatures they'll burn and just all kinds of stuff like that. So That's it's really a practical book for people who don't know anything about cooking. You know, I was lucky. My mom taught me some basics and I saw my father cook too. I mean, they both yeah. worked. And so, um, but I have to admit, I learned a lot from my wonderful wife who taught me that you don't actually have to follow the recipe. That like you could substitute some things in. And the first time she did it, I was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm watching someone commit sacrilege in a church. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> wait, we don't, we don't have vinegar and you're using lemon or something like, is that yeah. allowed or, or whatever the thing was. Yeah. Um, I talk about I, that too in my book. <laughs> that's fantastic because I think those are the things that that keep, you know, the modern set. I said modern, which is probably wrong. Contemporary people from, you know what? Uh, I'm just not going to bother. I'll here's a takeout menu when there's so much satisfaction to be had for cooking. Yes, there is. There is. It's therapeutic to me. Yeah. Are, are you, so you love to cook? Yes. What do you have? Uh, is there a genre or specialties or like what? What's the thing that really you do? I am. I am actually. Um, I like comfort food, so I make things like chicken pies and casseroles, and I love to bake. Uh, I have a, a carrot cake recipe. Uh, as a matter of fact, I made this carrot cake. I don't know if you remember the actor Rock, but uh, he had a gathering at his house once and I took the carrot cake over there and he hid it. <laughs> he didn't want anybody to eat it. 
Yeah, uh, that's amazing. And I, I think when you said comfort food, I always think macaroni and cheese. Yeah. And I want to I want to just do a slight segue because when I was a literary agent, I represented a lot of romance. And I know you also write fiction and <clears throat> you know, contemporary and historical. I know YA and middle grade. Mm-hmm. But but a lot of times those kind of books, when somebody finds their genre, they don't they want it as a comfort read. So well, I, the way I, I do a sort of a, I have a analogy. If you ask someone to make you macaroni and cheese, you want what you think everybody thinks of as macaroni and cheese. Right. I mean, there may be differences. Somebody puts a little bacon or pancetta, even lobster or peas. Like mm-hmm. you can get away with certain things and still feel like this is my comfort food. When someone comes out and they use a weird cheese and it's like a deconstructed macaroni and cheese with a different kind of noodle, like, don't mess with my macaroni and cheese, (laughs) right? And I feel like authors, sometimes they don't understand that when you're giving someone a comfort read, that there are parameters. You can be adventurous to some degree, but just as an example, with a romance, there has to be a happy ending. Yeah, somebody was talking about that yesterday, as a matter of fact. They were saying that they didn't feel like, um, oh, no, I know who it was. Was it um, um, was it Dorothy? Was it Dorothy that said that her books didn't have a happy ending and she was happy with that? Dorothy oh, Shaw? Oh, on my show? Yes. She might have, but Dorothy, and I hope you're listening, Dorothy. Dorothy's a little crazy. So <laughs> I've known her for a long time. I think time. she did say something about wanting a romance or writing a romance without a happy ending. And I thought, yeah, why not? Uh, that may be fine, but I, I, as an agent back in the day, would have a hard time selling it to a major publisher. They really uh, want a happy ending. You know what, let's talk about that. Can we talk about publishing? A- for- oh, absolutely. Oh, and, and people, it looks like we're about to open up a can of whoop-ass. Go ahead. Hit me. <laughs> Let me just let me just say this. First of all, when it comes to being an African American woman, I have tried to navigate this whole publishing thing in terms of traditional publishing since I met you and before. And I have still not been able to land an agent and I'm not bitter about it because I can self-publish and I'm happy with that. But I find that the way it's structured It's just not, and I'm not saying this just from an African-American perspective. I think the way things are structured in the publishing industry is a little backwards. And what I mean by that is the agent and author relationship to me is a little backwards. It's almost like, to me, it should be like uh, a man dating a woman. The woman should not be making the first move. (laughs) The woman should not be coming to the man and saying and begging him to take her out or whatever. He should be coming to her, and I'm old school, so I'm sorry, but he should be coming to her and asking her for a date. So to me, it's like, why is the author the one that has to chase after the agent? Why isn't the agent chasing after the author? Because it seems to me like if if she's chasing him, she's desperate. (laughs) And I don't wanna feel desperate as an author chasing after an agent. Does that make any sense? (laughs) It totally makes sense. And I think the analogy is perfect because I often likened the relationship once it happened to a marriage, but not just that, there also isn't much of a dating period. There's like, (laughs) you go on a blind date and then you get married in my experience. (laughs) And then a lot of times it works out great, but sometimes after a year or two, you realize 
we are in the wrong relationship. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so I totally agree with you, except I'm not sure how to change it. And for people who yeah. don't know, you know, yeah. authors have the book um, and mm-hmm. they, the agent has the email address that kind of everybody knows about. Or they show up at a conference like I used to do and you'd sit and people pitch to you. Mm-hmm. It's hard for an agent to you know, go out there and go, do you have a book? Do you have a book? Do you have a book? And, and that's hard, number one. Uh, number two, in the current situation as an agent, I got so many submissions. Even with an intern, it was often overwhelming and you'd have to yeah, shut down and for I a period. I understand that. I understand. But I understand, and I understand I'm overgeneralizing it. I may be overgeneralizing it, but I just oh. feel like... I agree with you. There has like to be a better way. <laughs> I feel like it's just too much work. <laughs> well, I, I, I do want to talk about uh, African-American writers. My only real experience when I, fr- well, my first educational experience, let me put it that way. I used to work with Suzanne Brockman. I was on her team before I was an agent. And if you know her, if you don't, she's a New York Times bestselling author who mm-hmm, wrote, mm-hmm. wrote and still writes romantic suspense. And my little claim to fame that got me involved in publishing is I'm the one who came up with the idea about writing about Navy SEALs, um, which kind of changed a a lot. Um, But aside from all of that, um, when uh, when Suze was writing her first series of Navy SEAL books, she wanted to have an African-American hero who was educated at Harvard Mm -hmm. and and was, I guess, ROTC and joined the Navy and ultimately became a SEAL and was an officer. But she also knew she was a white chick who grew up, Mm -hmm. you know, in Connecticut and Long Island and didn't want to pretend to have an idea of how to write a Black character. So she did what I consider a tremendous amount of research. And I'll let her talk about that someday because I think she did a great Mm -hmm. job. And a lot of people, a lot of people in the African-American community were very happy with her. The thing I'm going to point out is she was with a company whose name I won't say, but it's really synonymous with romance. So figure that out. Yeah, right. um, and um, uh, so anyway, um, they had a lot of trouble coming up with a good cover. They also printed less of that book than any of her other books when it first came out. And I won't tell all the stories because I'm not sure I know them all well and it's not mine to tell. But there were conversations with the heads and certain people in those companies that let's just say were not very pro African American romance. Now, to be fair, this was the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. But it's not like anything's changed. I mean, you could tell me. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I have talked to some. I guess agents as well as writers, even on Clubhouse, and um, and I don't know if you've ever been on there, but it's interesting. They had one group on there that was about publishing, mm-hmm. and many of the people who jumped in that room were actual agents and people who worked for publishing companies, and they got to having like a few drinks. <laughs> you should have heard the things that were coming out. It was like, who be a fly on the wall in here, right? Well, but- I think it's good to be on Clubhouse because nobody's recording it. Yeah. yeah. With Twitter, if you say things, it's there in pen yeah. on the internet. Yeah. But anyway. But the interesting thing about it is they were saying that they were looking for more African-American romance and more African. Well, they've always been looking for more African-American fantasy, but they're looking for Af- more African-American romance. 
And I thought that was a good thing, but um, it's always the bridge between what they're looking for and what they're actually going to publish is always like questionable. I think that the change happens when you have decision makers who are actually African-American, mm -hmm. to be honest. Yeah, where it's are like, they? <laughs> well, I, the, I, there is a woman, Monique Patterson, who I'd love mm -hmm. to have on the show. Monique, if you ever listen, please contact me, who I've been friendly with and worked with when I was a literary agent. She mm -hmm. is at, um, he is completely blanking, folks. Uh, they used to be at, she's at St. Martin. And she's pretty high up now, and she is a great editor, but she's like one of the few editors I know who's a woman of color. I have had some people on the show who are editors. Yeah, she's the same on press, yeah. Yeah, and um, she's, she's fantastic, but she's one person. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I'm sure people are talking about anyway is the fact that so many companies have merged and as a result, editors have left because they've been asked to leave for financial yeah. reasons. Um, or people are just like, I can't do this work anymore for so little pay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that too. And I understand, you know, the, the pain points in publishing and the things that are going on. And I don't expect it to change overnight or, or even ever for that matter. I would like to see it change, but I don't really think that it's going to change. Um, at least not, not probably to my satisfaction. I don't know. I, I've been out here, you know, doing this for such a long time. And I'm feeling like, you know, I have read every book. I've talked to just about every person from Larry Brooks to James Scott Bell to Gloria Kempton. To, I mean, I've, I've had actual conversations with these people and I've even had some of them critique my work and, and I, Gloria actually um, edited one of my manuscripts. And she told me I had great voice because you know, that's her big thing, dialogue. Mm. Um, so I don't feel like it's that I don't know how to write. I just wonder sometimes if people know where to place my work. And well, I think that's probably part of the problem because I wrote a fantasy recently about two African-American girls who go to um, a fantasy land because they need to save the fables for the Brothers Grimm. <laughs> but, you know, one girl lives in the projects and the other was in the suburbs and they have their struggles because they're related. Mm. And so, I mean, it's, you know, and then I wrote another book about um, these twins. They were half Italian and half black. And one of them has an Afro and one of them has straight hair. And so they have this big idea to bring down this uh, hair shampoo company because they won't put African-Americans in their ads that have Afros. I mean, I'm writing things that people you know, that I think are interesting. I think these are really, really know where to place them. <laughs> these are really fun. I, I will say this. I have noticed some organizations are being really smart and doing some really cool things. Apple has this uh, fantasy series called Foundation that I started watching. And there's mm -hmm. an African-American woman at the center of it who guess what? She's not a super great fighter. She's actually a brilliant mathematician. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, is that possible, folks? Yeah, in fact, yeah, it, it is, is possible. Um, not to hidden figures helped us with a lot of that stuff too, you know? Right, you know, and then you have people, I mean, there's a lot of great people. I, I'm not going to, in my uh, incredibly old white man way, 
tell people the black folks that they should be watching or reading or whatever. <laughs> but it's out there. Right. It's it's and it's starting. Is it enough? Absolutely not. I mean, we're just we're people, and you know, we're 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 on all levels, just like every other race is on all levels. There, some of us are not so smart, and some of us are are geniuses. I mean, we're just like everybody else. Right, but but I think that's the hard part. That's the part that people don't seem to understand is that we're we're just like everybody else. Yeah, it seems hard to retire certain tropes for sure, and it's also as someone who used to sell stuff to people. The boxes, putting people in boxes cuts both ways in that everyone objects to be putting in a box unless, of course, they're selling like crazy out of that box. Right, right. So, you know, boxes often help people find what they want. So if I tell someone that's where the romances are, mm -hmm. that's great. But then we get into smaller boxes of heat level, for instance. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. is the sweet yeah. romance. This is the right. erotic romance. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then there's all sorts of, you know, just like in music where notes are not right on the note, but kind of between the keys of the piano sometimes. There's some stuff that you can't, you know, how do we define this? You categorize, yeah. You know, I'm better at, in music, I'm better at that. Like, like let's say uh, someone's like, oh, Amy Winehouse, just to use an example, she's not black. <laughs> she's yeah. Jewish, she was Jewish. So I'll get to use her. So Amy Winehouse, how would you define her music? Well, it's not R&B, right. but it kind of is. Yeah. It's not 60s, but it kind of is. It's yeah. not pop, but it kind of is. Right. So I like, I don't know. She's her own mountain, right? She's her uh -huh. own box. But right. if you didn't know her and you were trying to find her, I don't know how you'd find her. Yeah. so boxes do help people find people sometimes yeah, but I'm not arguing in favor of boxes because I see too often mm -hmm. people don't get admitted into the club whatever club it is because people don't see them as going in the box right yeah yeah and yeah, that's I, problematic I, I agree with that. and so I, I I've just decided I thought okay I, I still have some things out there and I actually was working with an agent probably over the past eight months on a book that she really likes she's not offered but she's been spending a lot of time with me, which is kind of unusual um, because she really likes this book that I'm working on. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I just, I guess I've stopped trying to figure it out. I figure if it, if it happens, it's going to happen. If it's not going to happen, I'll just hire a publicist and keep self-publishing. Well, I like the idea of, of being accident prone. And what I mean is if you're going to catch a bus, <clears throat> you shouldn't walk in the woods. You know, like you should be walking on the streets and if you're not sure what bus to take, eventually buses show up and yeah. you get on one or whatever. Right. Um, and I feel like you do a lot of the right things. And I, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't be frustrated because it's taking <laughs> time or whatever, but a great thing, I always tell people, you should, if you're a writer, you should be going to conferences. Oh yeah. And pandemic aside, yeah, I have my reasons why I think conferences are great, and I've been fortunate enough to go to a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. What do you? What would you say to other writers about conferences and why you think they're great? I think conferences are great, but I think workshops are better. Ooh, good. Tell me why. I really like workshops because with workshops you get to not only share what you've done, but you get to see what other people have done, and you get to hear what the quote unquote experts have to say about other people's work as well as your own so that you can kind of, it's a community, you know, it's a small community, but it's a community for that period of time. 
And I think it's, it's encouraging because each, a lot of times in the workshops, they require each of the authors to critique each other's work. And I just, I think it was a great experience. The last one that I was in, um, I think I went to the Pacific Coast Children's Writers Conference with Nancy Sondell. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but um, that one was really cool. I actually met a, an agent from Writer's House who was interested in one of my publications, but um, my manuscripts rather, but I really enjoyed workshops. And depending on what genre you're writing, in this particular workshop that I went to, uh, and this was just last year, they had teen critiquers who were actually writers. And I was writing a teen book. And so it was really cool to have teenagers actually read it and say, okay, this sounds like an, a teenager or this doesn't sound quite right and give you tips. You know, writing for teens, I thought, oh, this is excellent. <laughs> I just really- That is it. excellent. Uh, that would be brilliant, of course. What a great idea. Thank you for, for sharing that. And for people who yeah, are not all so writers really house. Good. And they were able to give me advice on what they thought the book, how they liked the book. And, you know, so that was really cool. And I've got that one out on sub right now, but after so, they critiqued it and told me what they thought. So I just want to, for people who aren't familiar, number one, Writer's House is a literary agency. That's one of the top ones in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, just so we're clear, uh, when Faith says she's got something out on sub, she means that uh, it's out on submission either to agents or editors. I'm not sure which it is. Yes, agents. Yeah, I've got it out to agents. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted, believe it or not, we have like flown through a lot of our time as I <laughs> knew we would. Um, and I, by the way, I'll make sure that on the website for isthatreallylegal.com, uh, people, when they can click on you and listen to this, they can also, I'll make sure that they have your website there so they'll be able to find your publications that are already out and follow what's going on with you. Um, how do people follow you on social media? Um, I'm Night Author on Twitter. And that's and, spelled K-N-I-G-H-T. Yeah, K-N-I-G-H-T, yeah. And I have a WordPress site called The Real Night Author wordpress.com and on that side I talk a lot about writing mostly talk mostly about writing um, I mentioned some of my books there but my books are really mostly on Goodreads um, in terms of finding out the things that I've written already self-published already and on uh, Amazon of course that's great now when you and I had a brief conversation before we went on you said you wanted to talk about some legal things and I, I, I said I'm not sure that I'll have any ability to give any comments about it but if you felt like you wanted to talk about something legal now would be the time I think well it wasn't specifically about writing I was actually oh. interested in influencer contracts oh well that you know what it's very interesting that you bring that up because I recently did a seminar about all of the legal complications of influencers um, and for people who don't know what we're talking about they're as a result of mostly Instagram, although some on Twitter, <laughs> we have a new breed of human being, and not always human being, called an influencer. Uh, and that's someone who basically is kind of an advertiser, um, that people <laughs> follow them and somehow they become fans of them in the true sense, which fan is short for fanatic in case people forgot. <laughs> and, People forget that. <laughs> yeah. And the reality is some people really care about what other people think, especially if they're rich or pretty. Um, 
and or have been successful, whatever that means. And God only knows what success is to some people. But I know this is the old white guy rant. But um, also some animals are influencers, which is crazy, but true. Um, some people follow certain French bulldogs or corgis. <laughs> and now that's a new one on me. <laughs> uh, it's just true, especially here in Brooklyn, let me tell you. But well, what, how would you write a contract for an animal? <laughs> well, that, well, it, it's for the owners of the animal. Right. But course. where it gets complicated is, let's say, you know, Betty and Bob own Sumo. There is a dog named Sumo. Hi, Sumo, who's a very adorable French bulldog. But God forbid Betty and Bob get divorced. They have this very valuable asset. Right. Um, and what I, what I mean is, it's not just that there's a dog in lots of pictures. All of a sudden, that dog is getting a certain brand of treat or food. Mm -hmm. And are they getting paid to, are people getting paid to show pictures of that dog eating? So yeah. let's leave the dog aside for a moment. Let's say that you, Faith Knight, are, you know, you're uh, wearing a variety of fashions. And they always seem to be from Chanel. I'm going to just make you as much as possible. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> wow, what a lovely Chanel bag. And you're like, oh, hey, hey, do you like my new Chanel bag? It's like, no, we all hate it. Of course we love it. And we all want it. But we don't all have, you know, $7,000 or whatever it costs. And Chanel, if you would like me to be an influencer, <laughs> go to isthatreallylegal.com. Uh, I'll happily, I don't know what Chanel has for men much, really. I'd much prefer a Ralph Lauren or we can talk later. Anybody who's interested, but, it, uh, but I digress. But my point is you would be getting paid by Chanel in some way, shape or fashion. It might be checks. It might be the bag. Right. Um, but there are rules about that sort of thing also with the you know, federal communications people because it's advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and it's governed by advertising. Also, yeah, Mike, this is going to be a whole nother conversation that we'll have to have because I didn't <laughs> tell you, I have, a, I have a YouTube channel where I do fashion and skincare and all that stuff. And I've got about 4,000 subscribers. That's <laughs> awesome. Point where I'm going to start doing that kind of thing. So I'll be talking to you about influencer contracts then. That's great. And I think people, whether you use me or not, I think it's smart to start thinking about what do I need to do before suddenly I get papers in the mail telling right. me I didn't do the right thing? Yeah. A lot of, or before you just say, oh, it's not that complicated, I'll sign it, then something right. happens. I know you're smarter than that, but I can't tell you how many times I've had people approach me saying, I worked with this independent publisher and I signed this thing and now I regret it. I'm like, mm. wow, the time wow. to have called me was before you signed this thing. Yeah, I've heard that about some people who go with those smaller publishers. I've heard that about some authors who do that and have had like horror stories to tell. There are good small publishers. I, I'm not going to paint them with the same brush, but you have to, you need to protect yourself because you are your own advocate, especially if you don't have an agent. And a lot of these small publishers don't want to deal with an agent mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the very reason that yeah. They, they are not incredibly reputable. And I've had times where I've counseled people, it's better to not have a deal than deal with these people. Yeah. Now, people do what they do. And if right. they ignore me, I have a letter to them saying, this is my advice. So I don't get sued later on right. when they go, right. oh, exactly. Exactly. there's a lot of CYA in the world. And that means for, for you boys and girls, cover your ass. Um, you got to write letters to show that you gave a certain type of advice or, 
that you sought certain type of advice because uh, things come back to bite people. I save certain emails for that very reason. So that when people make some kind of statement in the world, I'm like, oh yeah, but I have this email from you saying this. So, as t- you know, yeah. I won't say. Anyway, I'll keep it clean, folks. Um, we we need to wrap it up, Faith Knight. Okay. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you're like, oh, what I really wanted to talk about or say was? <laughs> no, I think we pretty much covered it all. I got my little rant out there about the publishing industry, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's so delightful to be able to chat with you. We should do this again, not every eight years. Yes, because I think yeah, it's um, it's really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. That was the lovely and incredibly talented Faith Knight, journalist, writer. I hope you enjoyed meeting her as much as I enjoyed chatting with her. Um, You can get this podcast automatically if you subscribe through whatever way you do. You know, whichever way you listen to it, just subscribe and it'll get there. Also, please leave a review of this podcast. It helps people find it. And if you have any questions, concerns, comments, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place to leave me a message. We'd love to talk to you, with you, not always at you. Um, Please take care of yourselves. Get the shot already if you haven't done it. I mean, come on. Uh, Wear a mask where you need to. And just take care of yourselves and the people around you. Okay? Also, it's time to think about getting out the vote. There's a lot of political shenanigans going on in case you haven't been following the news. Let's keep our democracy. It would be really nice if we could do that. So vote, uh, give money to the candidates if that's appropriate for you, fundraise, uh, raise awareness. There's lots of things to do, lots of opportunities to get involved. And um, I hope you do that. And please be well, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.